Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Politics. Today, I'm speaking with Ben Rhodes about his book, After the Fall, The Rise of Authoritarianism in the World We've Made, published by Random House. From 2009 to 2017, Ben served as Deputy National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama. He was an instrumental voice in shaping Obama's foreign policy, writing many of the former president's speeches. And After the Fall, Ben attempts to make sense of the election of Donald Trump, the rollback of the order of the Obama administration, and the rise of authoritarianism around the globe. Ben, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Happy to be with you. Of course. Well, first question I'd like to ask is, how did you end up becoming the Deputy National Security Advisor to Barack Obama? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a job I actually set out to to get, Um, but the, the quick version is that I was a kind of an unlikely, um, <clears throat> sorry, um, the quick version is I was kind of an unlikely, um, you know, participant in the national security enterprise to begin with. I, I got a master's of fine arts and fiction writing, which I've uh, taken a lot of grief for over the years um, from my critics. But um, at, at 24, I, I witnessed the 9-11 attacks in, in New York, and it suddenly kind of made what I was doing feel trivial and disconnected from this enormous event I'd seen. And I set out to get involved in, in politics and foreign policy. And I, I worked for several years for a guy who ran a think tank in Washington, Lee Hamilton, but he was also the, the, the co-chair of the 9-11 Commission. Um, so I got, got that experience at a relatively young age, but I also got increasingly frustrated as a young person who went down to DC to kind of be a part of the 9-11 response with how, how wrong my government was getting it. Um, with the Iraq war, with kind of the abrogation of our values. And having worked on things like the 9-11 Commission, I also saw the limitations of, you know, writing reports and issuing recommendations. And I wanted to, to get involved in, in politics because I decided that, you know, the only way to, to, to make the kind of changes that I wanted to see in the world was to change the people kind of in charge. And that led me to, to go to work for the Obama campaign. And I liked Obama because he was different. He'd opposed the Iraq war. 
He represented generational change. And I was hired as a speechwriter and foreign policy advisor and, and kind of utility player on a, on a presidential campaign. You know, you do a bit of everything. Um, and on that campaign, I struck up a pretty close relationship with Obama. Um, we, we had a good kind of chemistry. He felt like I kind of understood what his voice was, both as a speechwriter and in terms of what he wanted to do in the world. So at the, at the relatively young age of 31, um, I became a deputy national security advisor um, in 2009, and I stayed all the way to the bitter end. So eight years, which is unusual in a White House. So, you know, you, you've written prior about your experience in the Obama White House. This book, of course, is not about that experience. This is about your experience after the White House. So, you know, I, I think obviously crucial to the end of that experience is the shock election of Donald Trump. So how would you characterize your reaction? Was it something that you thought was a possibility? Uh, and how did you feel about the work that you'd done seeing Trump coming in, mostly coming in saying that he was going to roll back most of what you and Obama and other people in the White House had sought to achieve? Yeah, it's it's really the starting point to this book after the fall. I mean, I um, I did and I didn't see Trump coming. Um, I didn't. I'll start there uh, in, in the sense that. Um, well, no, let me let me rephrase that. Uh, I mean, here, what I, here's what I did see coming. I, I experienced in the Obama administration the kind of building ugliness and authoritarianism around the world and in American politics. I mean, around the world you could sense a kind of trajectory of events moving in the wrong direction. And not, not just in the later Obama years, but from the financial crisis on, there was this kind of building backlash to democracy, to globalization, you know, Putin becoming more sort of Xi Jinping coming in in China and becoming much more totalitarian, um, democracy itself kind of being on the back foot. Um, you could feel those forces building globally. And that's in many ways what I was dealing with in the White House. And then domestically, the Republican Party of 2016 was was very different even from the Republican Party of 2009. You know, after after the Tea Party election in particular, you had the rise of kind of conspiracy theory. And, and I became a target of kind of the right wing media enterprise uh, and the you know, Breitbart's of the world and Fox. And and so I personally kind of experienced just how ugly um kind of right-wing and far-right politics was getting in, in the U.S. So what did not surprise me was that Donald Trump became the nominee um, of the Republican Party. He was kind of the, the logical endpoint of, of where not just the Republican Party, but the kind of right-wing media infrastructure in the U.S. had been going. It was basically as if the Fox News viewer actually became the, the leader of the party. And, however, I didn't think he'd win. Um, I thought I just thought that America had more guardrails than that. Um, and so I was caught off guard, not by kind of how radical he was and, and, and how ugly things had gotten, um, but, but by, by the fact that he could get over that hump. And so I was kind of, I was in a state of some shock, I think, uh, for the last transition period of the Obama administration. I had trouble processing it. And I remember flying out with Obama Every president gets one last flight on Air Force One, and we flew out to, to, to California to drop him and Michelle off for a, a vacation. And then the, the plane turned around and flew back. And there were only like five of us, uh, very close staff to them that had come on that trip. So imagine being on Air Force One, this plane that usually has like you know hundreds of people on it, Secret Service, press, staff, and you're just 
flying in the darkness on this empty jet. And, and the military aide to Obama said to me, uh, the guy used to carry the nuclear codes, he, he said, you're about to go through a very intense physiological experience. And um, I didn't quite know what he meant. And he said, no, you've been running on stress and adrenaline, and that's all going to drain out of your body. And, and you're, you, you see what I mean? I said, come on, man, you're talking about coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I don't think what I've been through is like that. But sure enough, um, for a period of months, I was kind of like almost debilitated. <laughs> but I think it was compounded by really the trauma uh, of seeing, you know, it's kind of a unique experience in history, uh, like a president come in and just try to dismantle everything the predecessor did just for the sake of doing that. And a lot of the stuff I had personally been most invested in was at the top of the list, the Paris Climate Accords, the Iran nuclear agreement, the Cuban normalization, which I negotiated. So it wasn't just seeing Trump elected. It was seeing like kind of an assault on my on my values, on my my what I thought was going to be the crowning life's work of mine. And meanwhile, I'm only 39. And so I was incredibly disoriented. And I, I wrote a, my first book, my memoir with the world as it is really fast. It, it was almost like, you know, putting that out in the world before I'd digested even what had happened. Um, and this second book, though, was the, the, the opportunity to step back and say, wait a second, like, what did happen and why? And why is it happening everywhere in the world? Did you have like an expectation of what you would be doing if Hillary had won? Would you have still been involved in the government in some way? Or, you know, was what you ended up doing and the, you know, the experiences you ended up writing about uh, in this book, because Trump had won? Uh, obviously, you didn't expect to be doing what you'd been doing, but did you have a sense of what what you made? You know, yeah, it's a good question. I I didn't think I would stay in government because, like I said, I'd been in government for eight years in the White House, and that that doesn't really happen. You know, it, it's it, physically and mentally, I was totally spent. But I think I would have been very adjacent to a Clinton administration. You know, I probably would have stayed in D.C. and you know, probably maybe come in to do certain things for them from time to time. Um, you know, uh, I think I would have, um, you know, I would have done writing and, um, and some of the similar things that I've done. But, but no, I, I like the trajectory of my life definitely was altered by um, the Trump election. And it, 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 it kind of sent me, um, it, it definitely shaped what I did and how I thought um, uh, and, and ways that I did not anticipate and could not have planned. So, you know, this book is about the rise of authoritarianism. Uh, and, you know, you, you focus on, on four characters in particular, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and Viktor Orban. Uh, you know, you, you make the argument that the rise of authoritarianism is partially a result of two factors, uh, the disastrous response to 9-11, and the effects of the American globalization leading to the Great Recession. Can you elaborate on the connection between these two sort of America-centric uh, factors and how they contributed to authoritarianism, not just in America, but elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think the first point is um, Orban, you know, why, why Orban, um, which has actually become more evident, not less, since um, the book came out. He's speaking to, you know, yesterday as we speak, he, he spoke at, at CPAC, the Conservative Political Conference in Texas. And 
the, the, the kind of starting point for the book for me was a conversation I had with a Hungarian opposition figure. Um, and it's before I even knew that what this book was going to become. And I said, well, how did, how did Hungary go from being a liberal democracy to a, basically a single party autocracy in a decade? Um, from 2010 to, to, to when I was talking to him. And he said, well, that's simple. Orban got elected on a right-wing populist backlash to the financial crisis. Uh, he packed the courts with far-right judges who would find in favor of power grabs. He changed the parliamentary districts to entrench his party in power beyond their vote share. He changed the voting laws to make it easier for his supporters to vote and harder for his opponents to vote. He enriched some cronies through corruption who then financed his politics bought up the media and turned it into a right-wing propaganda machine. He used social media to, to demoralize and demonize his opponents, and he wrapped it all up in an us-versus-them nationalist message. You know, us, the real Hungarians, against them, the liberals, the Muslims, the, 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 the Jews, the, uh, George Soros. And, you know, as he's telling me this story, you know, I'm thinking, well, that, that sounds familiar. That's a remarkably um, the playbook that uh, I feel like the Republican Party has been running. And it kind of tapped into kind of the sense I had that there was an interconnection between this rise of authoritarianism in so many different places and, and the flavor of that authoritarianism. And when I, when I spent time in the book talking to people around the world, like I started pulling the thread on those commonalities. And I felt like for a lot of Americans who write about authoritarianism, like to just write it about it as some distant phenomenon or like to focus only on our geopolitical adversaries, you know. Um, but what I couldn't help but notice is, you know, in the Hungary story, which is kind of a laboratory of, of what had happened. And, and by the way, I should say all these countries, Hungary, Russia and China that I deal with, were on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And so the question is kind of the 30 year period since the end of the Cold War, which is what I really write about. America had kind of almost unprecedented hegemony in the world during that time. Um, and yet, look at the trajectory of politics in the world at that time. We have to wrestle with the fact that somehow the outcome of this period of American dominance was the rise not of democracy as we thought it'd be, but of authoritarianism. And, and, and the short version of, of what I found is that, you know, globalization and, and the particular kind of unbridled capitalism um, that was kind of unleashed on the world after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yes, it, it lifted a lot of boats and it lifted a lot of people out of poverty in places like China and it raised global standards of living, but it, 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 it exploded inequality and, and, and also kind of assaulted people's sense of traditional identity. And when the whole thing came crashing down in, in 2008 in the financial crisis, people were ripe for the autocratic appeal of someone like an Orban, who could say to them, this system is just as rigged as the old one, right? This, this new system is just as rigged as, 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 as the communist system, really. What I can offer you is belonging and the traditional identity that comes from a kind of blood and soil nationalism in a disorienting time. Um, and, and I think that's a common thread I found everywhere. And frankly, a Hong Kong official that I spoke to anonymously put it well to me when I explained to him I was writing a book about the rise of authoritarianism. He said, well, that's simple. It all's rooted in the 2008 financial crisis. That's the moment when um, the West realized that liberal democracy and globalization had failed and Beijing realized that they could replace the United States. And that's an oversimplification, but not by much, I think, right? So 
So I do think that the excesses and inequality and discrediting of the international kind of system after the financial crisis, it ended up discrediting democracy as much as as capitalism and, and globalization. And at the same time, I think America had made its kind of purpose in the world, um, particularly after 9-11, obviously, this war on terrorism, which whether we want to admit it or not, was the kind of perfect frame internationally for autocrats to claim more power. And Putin actually used the, the global war on terror as, as a, you know, a smokescreen for a lot of his own uh, autocratic maneuvers in Russia. Um, China calls its internment of Uyghurs a people's war on terror. Um, the U.S. drew closer to a lot of autocratic regimes in the fight against terrorism. George Bush's framing of the war in Iraq as a fight for democracy, I think, discredited democracy. So I think the war on terror did real damage to the kind of example of democracy and it gave a lot of credence to kind of securitized narratives uh, by the Putins of the world to justify what they were doing. And I think at home, what 9-11 did is it created a, an us versus them mentality. You know, and at first the, the us were the, the flag waving Americans and the them were the terrorists. But as the wars didn't turn out well, um, the them shifted. If you're watching like a Fox News, the same kind of xenophobia that was once targeted terrorism could be repurposed to immigrants at the southern border, to a black president, um, to just about any cast of characters. And it created a nationalism here um, that I think was an unhealthy nationalism. And frankly, we did not win the post 9-11 wars. And when superpowers don't win wars, um, they start to look for enemies to blame within. You know, and I think that this, there's a psychology of Trump and his supporters that's like if you were somebody who was already beaten up by globalization, beaten up by capitalism in a system that feels rigged. And then you were promised these great victories after 9-11 that didn't materialize. You're pretty ripe to, to be angry. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's a phenomenon that's played out not just here, but in a lot of places. Yeah, there's, there's one quote in particular from Alexei Navalny that, I, that really jumped out to me. And I'm sort of wondering if you could comment on, on what you think about it, uh, where Navalny says that, you say Navalny saw the rotating cast of American technocrats, Ivy League academics like Jeffrey Sachs and Larry Summers, and political consultants who advised Boris Yeltsin as essentially unwitting co-conspirators and screwing the Russian people. I mean, this is a very pointed statement. What do you make of this uh, this line, and, and why do you include it in, in the book? I think because we Americans, um, you know, we tend to think that, um, the, particularly after the Cold War, I think we tended to embrace a narrative, and I wrestled with this as someone who was kind of came of age at that time, that there's an inevitability of progress, you know, and so that when a Soviet Union collapses, which I think is, you know, a good thing in historical context, but that there was like, you know, if they if they all just embrace uh, uh, globalization and open up their markets as fast as possible and privatize things as fast as possible, that that there's just some formula that will take hold and and these places will become not just capitalists but democracies and 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 that this is just going to wash across the globe, you know, and that, that there was a hubris um, in which we didn't kind of look at the particular context of different countries and the particular 
traumas and complexities of different countries. And, and that what I found in Navalny as a character, and he's a key character for me in Russia, is he, like Putin, he felt like very deeply the humiliation of Russia. He described to me, and I think a very powerful anecdote, being a child in a military town outside of Moscow. And one, his whole childhood, he'd been told he was born in the greatest country in the world. He was told the same thing I was told as a child in America. And then it all comes crashing down. And he describes getting rations from the West German army um, because there were such food shortages in the Soviet Union that there were these rations from the literally the Germans, right? So the Russians who'd fought this brutal war against the Germans are now getting basically care packages and he's getting candy from the Germans and, and just being filled with childhood kind of rage at that. And then meanwhile, you know, these American consultants show up and they're like, well, here's, you privatize the, 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 all, the state owns the whole economy, you privatize these things. Well, what happened? Obviously, that was a fire sale and rife with corruption. And what ended up happening is there weren't even legit auctions, right? They were fixed, they were rigged so that certain oligarchs could get their hands on the state oil companies and the state, you know, any natural resource company for, for, for literally a penny on the dollar in many cases. And so you have these people coming in and saying, privatize, privatize, this will all work out. And the you know, IMF and the World Bank doing programs. But what does a Russian see? Like an American sees that as like, oh, they're, this is becoming capitalism. This is progress. What Russians see is this is fucking corrupt. Sorry, <laughs> this is totally corrupt. And a handful of people are getting rich and we're miserable here. You know, we're, our life isn't even better than it was in the Soviet days for a lot of people in the 90s. And that contributed to, to Putin's rise um, because what Putin did is he, he simultaneously capitalized on the outrage at the 90s and he put his own oligarchs in charge so he could get rich himself. Um, it was not unlike what Trump did 20 years later, right? Someone who's simultaneously corrupt but taking advantage of corruption to get in power. And I, I thought that that was an important to include because uh, Americans, uh, again, like we have to question our own assumptions uh, uh, about kind of what, what one size fits all model we can just drop on a place. And in and, and the 90s, I think a lot of us thought, well, Yeltsin's the good guy and um, privatization, you know, is is the pathway to progress. And, and, and a lot of the, those assumptions ended up creating a kleptocracy in Russia. Um, you know, and it's not to say it's all our fault. I mean, ultimately this is Putin's fault, but like we have to examine at least um, that, uh, that, that our own hubris contributed to uh, what we're seeing in a lot of places around the world. In a, in a place like Hungary, for example, you know, Hungary, as you, as you relay w- was hit pretty badly and, the financial crisis. At the same time, too, why would someone like Viktor Orban or why would anyone say, oh, well, you know, the West is bad or America is bad, but Russia is better? Like, that just seems like uh, a strange conclusion to draw. Like, what, what was motivating Viktor Orban to start to uh, pivot towards, towards Russia? It's a great question. And, you know, part of what's so fascinating about Orban, I write about, you know, he, he actually was an anti communist, um, anti Russian you know, firebrand in his 20s. And he actually received, very few people realize, because he rails against George Soros today, he was a beneficiary of a fellowship from George Soros to go to Oxford. And then he came back and he spoke at a famous 
uh, rally um, in Budapest that was kind of the first moment when people demanded the end of the communist regime. And then he kind of became, he had a, a relatively unremarkable stint as a kind of center-right prime minister in the, in the aughts. Um, and then after losing, he kind of refashioned himself as a politician who was against um, really the neoliberal consensus, which is funny because he's a right winger. But, you know, he, he started railing against multinational corporations as consuming all of the wealth of Hungary. Um, and then he positioned himself as a, as a Christian conservative. And the, the movement he built um, before he came back to power in 2010, it felt a lot like the Tea Party to me because it was about Orthodox Christianity and kind of opposition to just the American-led enterprise. Um, and, and so I actually think ideologically those things do lead him to some alignment with Putin. Um, I think also there was some corruption to it. And so, so in, in, in talking to some investigative journalists, like Orban was also building ties with uh, the FSB and with uh, Putin's circle um, and, and probably getting some financing. And, and so, you know, some of this is just pure corruption. But I think ideologically, we have to understand there is an affinity. And Orban's kind of most famous speech was in 2014, where he said, the future uh, does not belong to, to democracy, it belongs to illiberal democracies. And Russia and China have the models that we should follow. And what he's really getting at, and, you know, is less, um, you, you know, it's le- less a love of r- Russian kind of, kind of culture or anything, or even, you know, Putin's agenda in Ukraine, for instance, and more just a sense of like a politics rooted in blood and soil nationalism and kind of Christian values as designed in opposition to Muslims and LGBT people and others, you know, the the kind of capital O other, um, and in opposition to kind of American dominance of the global system suits my political interests and frankly can give my supporters a sense of belonging to something. Um, And I think we ignore the potency of that model at our peril because the other thing we have to realize is that that's pretty normal throughout human history. I mean, Blood and soil nationalism has been around for a lot longer than democracy in terms of its appeal um, to, to publics. And so I think Orban and Putin are actually singing from like the older pre-war, war two, even pre-World War One handbook um, of, of how you get and hold power. You, you make this really interesting point, or I, I don't know if it's you making the point or if it's, in the, you know, one of your acquaintances at Hungary making the point about historical uh, knowledge in Hungary and how basically because, um, you know, after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, because, you know, some pe- some families had were party members and then also even going back further, some pam- some families were Nazi collaborators, that there's this kind of discomfort around talking about history. Um, and I was wondering, you know, as you as you point out, you know, these these three countries that you look at are all you know, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, we're all on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Um, you know, to, to what extent is is that sort of difficulty around talking about history and this kind of, you know, inventing uh, history, you know, inventing a common past, you know, even, even in America, Trump obviously is a person that does this, trying to, you know, and what we saw in the summer a couple of years ago with uh, all the, the fighting around uh, Confederate monuments, uh, you know, to what extent do you think historical knowledge and just, not just recent events, but just deeper events uh, inform the modern authoritarian uh, push. 
I think they're central. Uh, you know, I th- thought of them as kind of underground rivers that, that run underneath our, our respective body politics. And that comment was, you know, this opposition, you know, anti-corruption figure named Shandor Letterer, who was just a remarkable character. And he literally, uh, he, it, it's a pre- presence in each of the countries I look at. Shandor literally walked me around Budapest and he, he could show me the kind of physical manifestation of this. So Orban literally removed um, certain statues of some of the um, more left-wing anti-communist figures in Hungary's history and, you know, suddenly rehabilitated every kind of right-wing figure or movement in, in, in Hungary's history. And you could see, you know, one place he'd kind of built a, a, um, a statue um, that minimized Hungary's um, role in the, the Holocaust that had, you know, kind of, kind of a sense that, that this was imposed on them, not done by a collaborating regime. And then there were pictures that people had placed of Holocaust victims all around it to protest this. And you could feel right underneath the surface of Hungarian politics, these unresolved historical issues. But what Orban has done is kind of framed the, the history of Hungarian nationalism as, as Hungarian greatness and tapped into the grievance of Hungary losing a lot of its territory after World War I. And he continually comes back to this in, in, in a way that is eerily reminiscent, you know, say, of, of a Hitler coming back to um, the Treaty of Versailles, you know, the, the, the lost land, the lost ethnic Hungarian nation. That's what Orban represents. You know, Putin very methodically has similarly framed the collapse of the Soviet Union as kind of a disaster, not because of the loss of communism, but because of the loss of the Russian empire and Russia's sense of greatness. And, and I, 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 ta- I have a remarkable writer, Maria Stepanova, who frames Putin as this man who kind of wanted to step back into history. Uh, and, and that's the history of Russian imperial greatness. And so he's rehabilitating a figure like Stalin, not because he agrees with communism, but because he just agrees with Russian relevancy and imperial, uh, imperial ambition. Um, and, and, and the Orthodox Russian church, which was kind of kept under the wraps during the Soviet days, obviously, Putin is really brought back uh, as, as a pillar of his regime. I think most interestingly in China, uh, I talked to some people about the fact that the Chinese Communist Party, I talked to a, a guy who was in Tiananmen and then became a, a, a prominent book publisher against the, the Chinese Communist Party, about how the Chinese Communist Party, after the fall of the, the wall and Tiananmen, realized it needed a source of legitimacy other than communism, in part because they were moving towards uh, capitalism, obviously a state-run capitalism. And so they kind of rehabilitated Confucius, who had been marginalized under Mao, and really amped up in ways that we underappreciated its anti-Western, anti-Japanese narrative as a source of legitimacy in the, in the 90s and 2000s, kind of leading up to Xi Jinping. And so the, the, the Communist Party is a much more Chinese nationalist party informed by grievance um, and historical grievance. And that's where we're living right now. I mean, Taiwan is about an historical grievance that China wants to take back what's theirs. Ukraine is about an historical grievance that Russia wants to take back what's theirs. Uh, Orban's ambitions beyond Hungary about historical grievance that Hungary was once an empire and should have an influence in the world. And I think if we're honest, you know, Trump is a different form of nostalgia for a time when, you know, uh, this was a country that was less diverse um, and, you know, you know, let's just say like, I I think a a time when, when white men, you know, kind of called the shots around here. And 
um, and things were somehow simpler. And uh, and so I think that, that that kind of longing for the past and that control of histor- historical narrative is central to, to any authoritarian movement, nationalist authoritarian movement. Yeah, something I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, your, the successor in your role under Trump was Michael Anton. And Anton has, you know, been a, a powerful advocate of Orban, you know, and, and like you mentioned at the very start of this interview, Orban is in Texas. It, maybe, I don't know if he's still there, but Orban was just in Texas uh, giving a speech to CPAC. Um, you know, what, what does, why has Orban become just this, this figure of kind of importance or significance to the conservative movement in America? It just, a part of it just seems so strange. Like, is it, is it just the fact that he is, you know, charismatic and intelligent and is playing it, you know, for his own gain? Or, you know, is there, are there other reasons why Orban has become this, this sort of central figure? I think it's it's a fascinating, it's one of the reasons why I set out to write this book. And, and trust me, when I told my editor I was going to start with a you know long section on Hungary, <laughs> he said, is that, is that really where we want to start here? But I was like, no, because I think he's central to understanding what's happening in the Republican Party. And I'd say, first of all, you have to understand there's a symbiosis to Orban. He is both an, someone who's had influence on the American right and been influenced by it. Orban's political consultants in his successful run for the prime minister in 2010, they were American Republican political consultants. By the way, he would actually just worked on Bibi Netanyahu's race too. So there, there was always a, a bit of a sense of a global far-right international, if you will, that informed uh, Orban's rise. He, he's, he's emulated the Republican Party as much as he's, he's influenced it. But I think why he really breaks through in matters is Orban was early in saying the quiet part out loud, right? So this was a guy that was building a wall, you know, to keep immigrants out before Trump was trying to build a wall. He was someone who was saying out loud that liberal democracy is is dead and should be left in the past, kind of back when that wasn't something you would hear on even, you know, say Tucker Carlson on Fox. Um, he was going after you know, George Soros in ways that nobody had heard. So for, for, for a Western leader who, who had made it into office, right? Not like you know, the National Front outside in, Paris, in France, not quite you know, getting over the hump. A guy who, who'd taken power, espousing Christian values and just building a whole political persona that in some way was about attacking and discrediting and defeating liberalism. You know, that obviously had an appeal. <laughs> and, and like, you're right, he, there's, he actually lends a kind of intellectual cachet to it, too, because he, he, frame, he likes to frame things in, 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 in terms that are a little more elevated, shall we say, than, you know, American talk radio. So I think Orban is, you know, he's created this laboratory of right-wing authoritarianism in, 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 in Hungary that is both influenced by Americans and then influences them. I also think he's an important figure because Orban copied a lot from Putin's playbook, um, you know, uh, the, the way in which he took control of the media, the way in which he kind of labeled civil society as tools of foreign influence. Um, so Orban, in many ways, is also kind of the bridge, this kind of weird bridge between Putin and the American far right. You know, um, uh, he's the acceptable go between in a way, uh, if you will. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Just to sort of to pivot to something still related to the issue of Hungary, because it's, it is something that was re- that is relevant um, to Hungary. But, you know, you talk about this pretty terrifying experience of discovering that the private intelligence firm Black Cube, run by former Mossad operatives, had been spying on you. And I'm wondering, you know, what is this organization? Why did they target you? And what are its connections to Hungary, Israel, and just right-wing nationalists in general? No, it's, so it's, I, it's, it's, it was an amazing story. I mean, I've, I learned from the press, right? It was in The Guardian um, in 2018 that Black Cube, which was a private intelligence enterprise uh, of ma- basically former Mossad agents, had been you know, targeting me, following me, trying to dig up dirt. And, and the way the story went in The, in the Guardian was that you know, Trump Associates, it was very vague, had hired uh, Black Cube to dig up dirt on me because of my role in supporting the Iran nuclear agreement, which obviously the American and Israeli right loathed. Um, and and, and I, I heard from people who had literally the file. Um, and, and it was kind of creepy. It was like, you know, pictures of my apartment and my car and my parents' phone number. And, and we went back and found a contact that my wife had gotten from a woman claiming to be a film producer um, uh, who wanted to interview her about the private lives of people who, um, you know, uh, negotiated with Cuba and Iran, basically, so it wasn't subtle. Um, and, but, you know, what was most interesting to me is that uh, when I went to write this book, um, I, two of the Hungarian characters uh, I interviewed were like, yeah, I, I was spied on by Black Cube too. Uh, and I didn't even know that when I made contact with them. And and they'd had similar experiences where they you know, had someone reach out to them. And, and basically the story there had been that they tried, Black Cube had tried to set up stings where they got people to say on tape, you know, that they were uh, taking money from George Soros, which by the way, is not like a secret, like the Open Society Foundation funds them. Um, but they, they, they were able to blow that into a conspiracy that then made headlines in the Jerusalem Post that like, these Hungarian organizations were lobbying against their own government on behalf of George Soros. And the Jerusalem Post headline was kind of alarmist. And then Orban took that in the closing days of his, his election campaign in, 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 in the previous Hungarian election to say, you know, this is a proof of the plot. And by the way, that was, so that was all mind blowing to me, not just that they had a similar black cube experience, but that you had an Israeli organization kind of engaged in an what I would normally think of as an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory <laughs> that, that a Jewish financier was trying to overthrow a government to control it and getting the leak of the audio recording in the Jerusalem Post. Um, but, but what it speaks to is a couple things. One is, the, again, the kind of global service organization of, of the far right, you know, that the same group that is targeting Americans would target Hungarians. And then when I talked to Navalny, the first thing Navalny said to me is like, Oh, I saw you were spot on by Black Cube. So was I. Somebody once hired them to dig up dirt on me for Putin for a birthday present for Putin. So there was this kind of common service industry that, that we've learned a lot more about, by the way, the spyware that is used to, to spy on journalists and activists and civil society people in many countries. Um, the, the, 
but also the privatization of functions like intelligence, right? That that everything is now for sale. And if you want to dig up dirt on someone or blackmail someone or embarrass someone or just set up kind of a, a sting operation to have a, a recording that is cast in the worst possible light, um, that that's all privatized now. You know, um, th- that speaks to, I think, the, the nature of the world we're in now, where this is kind of a profit-driven, um, you know, the, the blending of profit and autocracy. Um, you know, so, so, so to me, the Black Cube story, you know, became the tip of a bigger iceberg to describe you know, how there's common tools that are used and disinformation, obviously, is the most prominent example of this disinformation campaigns in social media, common tools and tactics, um, making use of things that are in the private sector, which gives governments like a degree of deniability. So like both the Israeli government and the Trump administration could deny they had anything to do with uh, Black Cube spying on someone like me, but it's a bunch of former Mossad guys. <laughs> like, um and, 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 you know, so th- I think it, it's kind of an element of this new vein of, of authoritarianism we're dealing with. Sort of on that, you know, picking up on what you said about this kind of privatization of intelligence and just the sense which in which everything is for sale. You know, you, you, you have a, a section talking about Citizens United and just like the impact of, of uh, money and finance and politics. And there is one line which I think in the entire book was just the one that like really jumped out at me, where you say people like me come and go in positions of power, but money and those who manage it remain constant. And it's like, you know, when I read that, I'm like, oh, well, but you were the deputy national security advisor, like you should be such a powerful and influential person, you know, to to what extent, you know, and I guess maybe your expectations about when you first went into government and also, you know, what you think, like, how powerful are government officials realistically compared to uh, the financiers and the moneyed people of the world. Yeah. So one thing that jumped out to me, uh, I relayed in the book, which is I was in, you know, one of, when you're a former government official, one of the things you do is you go speak at things. And, and um, I, I didn't do too much of it because like, you, you know, that, that itself can become <laughs> kind of corrupting. Um, but I went to a dinner uh, in Hong Kong with a collection of, of hedge fund uh, folks mainly, right? And they were largely American. Uh, I think they may, they may have all been American. Um, and it was kind of early in the Trump administration, but late enough that it was pretty clear, you know, that Trump was pretty, you know, alarmingly uh, unusual as an American president. And they were kind of quizzing me about issues. And then in front of me, they kind of got in an argument with each other. Because um, I was saying, like, Trump is basically accelerating the end of the world order that America has designed. Um, and, and they started debating whether that acceleration w- offset the benefit of Trump cutting taxes for them, <laughs> cutting regulations. And then they, one guy got frustrated and said, come on, I want to show of hands, how many of us actually voted for Trump? And most of the hands in the room went up, even though every one of these people was educated enough to articulate, not educated, but, you know, got it enough to articulate why Trump was dangerous. Um, and you know, I'd go to these other meetings and, and people would be asking me questions basically that were about bets that they wanted to place, right? Like, you know, what's going to happen on what timeline in this part of the world? And 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 seeing the world through the perspective of, of people who dealt only in markets in which human beings are totally irrelevant, you know, like, you know, and I'm not, 
it's not a value judgment because I did things in government. I was part of things that I'm sure they could fix negative values too. Like, um, but so it's not their, them individually, but the, the system that, that, that looks at markets that, that never, that never changes. And, and, you know, governments come and go. Um, and, and what doesn't change is, is, is those market incentives and, those market incentives don't align with human incentives in a lot of cases. Um, like in a city like Hong Kong, the private sector was, you know, loath to defend democratic values um, because they wanted to be the gateway to the Chinese market. Um, even though they lived in a city that was getting its civil liberty swallowed up around them. And I spent a lot of time uh, profiling that in Hong Kong. And, and yeah, at the end of the day, I came to feel like, you know, even when I was in government, like we're just temps, Obama. Barack Obama, like world historical figure, he's a temp to these guys. You know, they, they're going to be there. They're going to be rich and powerful when he's gone, you know. Um, and so therefore, you know, no matter what he tried to do in those eight years, like they were still going to be, um, you know, and, and rich and powerful, by the way, in a, at a level that I think we haven't realized is artificial in human history, you know, like. The, the, the concentration of wealth that, that is in private hands um, today in, in a handful of individuals didn't that didn't exist in the in the 1950s 60s or 70s pre Reagan America basically um, the, the 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 post Reagan approach frankly to to capitalism and regulation and taxation has made you know non state actors in the private sector um, you know, far more powerful than, than, than anything we've seen since, you know, a long time ago, like the East India company kind of days. And I think we haven't gotten our, gotten our minds around that. And, uh, and again, I think in the U S I point to citizens United because like the, the Republican party depends, has depended upon the support of people who don't agree with their agenda in terms of their, view of social policy or abortion, but, you know, know that if these crazy people get elected, you know, we can make more money. Um, and I think that Trump is impossible without those people and that dynamic. And so it's easy to point at um, the, the racist and the MAGA hat at the rally, um, but uh, it's harder to point at like the New York hedge funder with an apartment a block from where I grew up on 86th street, who was throwing fundraisers for Trump, you know, but that's who made Trump as much as the guy in the MAGA hat. Obviously they like Trump because he's going to cut their taxes. Um, you know, is that what the equation comes down to for a lot of these people that it's kind of just this, you know, cynical, like, Oh, well, I just, you know, I care about how much money I have and I want to buy my, you know, second apartment or my fourth house I think it's bigger than taxes. I think that's only part of it. I think it's just also about like, what is the, the primary motivation? And, and, and in the China section, I described this, you know, kind of weird experience I had getting woken up in my hotel room in 2017, after we left government, by a Chinese government official who was there to warn me that Obama shouldn't meet with the Dalai Lama, uh, who he was planning to meet with in a couple of days. And what was weird about it is that we hadn't announced the meeting with the Dalai Lama, and I'd actually only been put in email contact with the Dalai Lama that day. So, um, you know, he's basically letting me know, hey, we're reading your email. We don't like this thing we saw. 
and with that kind of, you know, somewhat alarming uh, nighttime visit, I walked out and I described seeing the Shanghai skyline, the Bund, which is looks like the future, right? It's like Blade Runner meets, you know, whatever. Uh, beautiful lights uh, on the skyscrapers, you know, glistening off the water, people taking selfies with selfie sticks. And I say this in answer to your question because I'm looking at that and it looks like the future and it's kind of disorienting and unsettling to me, but also very logical because if you take a, the system America built, right, the pursuit of profit, the kind of worshiping of technology, the national security, you know, obsession, and you drained all the democracy out of it, like you would get what I was looking at in Shanghai, you know? And, and, and so to me, it's basically about the fact that, you know, we've become a political system and a society and an economy that, that values profit over everything else. And that simultaneously allows a handful of people to get remarkably rich while enraging like a, a set of people that are not rich in ways that make them ripe for nationalist appeals, you know? So, so again, like t- to me, it's, I, and I wrestled, I, I kind of wrestled with this um, in thinking about my own role in this, like, like, like in, in terms of as a national security official with China, like in whether or not our priority in the relationship with China was ever democracy or human rights. It wasn't. In the first Obama term, it was getting stimulus to come back from the global economic crisis. In the second term, it was climate change, getting their support for the Paris Agreement. But like, I think across the board, you know, we've not valued democratic values, equity, as much as we've just valued, you know, economic growth and and profit and political contributions in a post-Citizens United world. And when it's so expensive to run for office, you can't be do things that will alienate you from your political donors and contributors. Um, and, and, and so it, it's taxes, but it's also just a mentality in which, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing more important than profit itself. And that the backlash to that leads people not to an economic populism of the left, but to a, the, the desire to, to belong to something, which is the nationalist po- populism of the right. Just to sort of wrap this up, because um, we've been going for a while, you know, obviously, since the book came out, you know, there's been so much has happened in the world, you know, and especially, you know, like we said, with Orban recently at CPAC, CPAC uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and recent ongoing uh, ongoing conflict with China over Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. You know, if, if you were counseling Joe Biden or you're counseling uh, whoever might be the the next Democratic challenger, if it's not him, to sort of see these challenges as interconnected, or do you think it's important to kind of differentiate them and treat them as? separate issues, that Russia is a separate issue from China is a separate issue from what's going on at home? I, I see them as, as interconnected. Um, and, and frankly, like what's weird about this book is that, you know, the main characters, you know, the Hungarian opposition got walled by Orban, who's now like swanning at CPAC and gone kind of full fascist. Navalny is my main Russian character. He was poisoned while I was in the course of interviewing at, at the time, but like, you know, he's poisoned right after I interviewed him for this book. 
and is now in prison and they've invaded Ukraine, obviously. Um, the Chinese Communist Party is obviously, you know, as we speak, you know, like doing military exercises around Taiwan. Um, January 6th happened literally, the I think, the day after I handed in the manuscript. So, like, these trends that I talked about, you know, unfortunately, like, they're, they're very much with us. And you hear Joe Biden talking about, you know, democracy versus autocracy and democracies have to deliver. Uh, uh, but I think there's something bigger that's just kind of missing, which is... You know, the good news, if there is good news, is that I think people are kind of a, much more aware of this today than they were, like, say, five years ago. Like, and not just in a kind of like resistance to Trump thing, but like in terms of like, hey, there's there's something really wrong happening. Um, like the first step to, to doing something about something is just kind of being aware of it. And, and, and I think, for instance, even in this country, things like January 6th, but also like the Dobbs ruling, you know, it's really made people aware of like, why are we governed by like a minoritarian, you know, set of ideologues. But I think what's missing is what is the story? And obviously I have a speechwriting background, but like what, what are we offering that is giving people a sense of, of belonging? You know, when Democrats say like, we don't want to fight culture wars, we want to talk about the economy. I think that's, that's entirely wrong in the sense that like people aren't voting for Republicans or for Viktor Orban or what have you because they um, are being tricked into not thinking about their economic interests. Like people, th there's something very disorienting about life in 2022. The technology, the economic context, um, the, what does security mean in that kind of world? And, and we're not yet offering people something that is, combines like policy approaches, but with also a story about like, what is the other way of dealing with that other than reverting back into a, like a form of tribalism that, that leads leads to war? And we can see what the wars are. They're coming into shape in Ukraine and potentially Taiwan and Iran is lurking up there given the, the road that's been taken on, on that issue. Um, and, and so I think what's what I'd be advising someone is like, you have to draw the connections between your, your it's what we were just talking about, by the, way, by the way, like your economic agenda. If your economic agenda is fairness, well, that's your democracy agenda, because the reason people are getting screwed economically is because there's a brand of politics that would rather screw people economically to, to pursue their own radical extreme agenda um, than to do anything to help you. And like there just has to be a, a dot connecting between the corruption and the economic circumstance and like this sense of like, what do we belong to? Who are we as Americans? Um, who are we as Hungarians? What does it mean to be European? Like these big questions about identity need to be linked to what democracies are trying to do uh, economically or in, in terms of, of government. So um, th that, that's a more complicated way of saying like someone's got to weave this together into a, a single story about what the alternative is to Putinism, Orbanism, Trumpism, because they are all different flavors of the same thing. Um, and if you look at like an FDR, like that's a guy who did that. Like his, he had a message about an economically populist message. There was also like a patriotic message about belonging and identity. Um, I think FDR is a really good place to look for the, the kind of way to merge your policy and your story and, and, and you know, with, with uh, you know, what you're saying and what you're doing in a way that can, can fight back this kind of trend. Hopefully, though, without having to hang on, have as big a war as he had to fight. Well, Ben, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was really 
great to hear your take on these things, these very pressing, pressing issues. Uh, you know, hopefully things will <laughs> will not look so frightening <laughs> uh, in in the near future. But well, thank you. Yeah, uh, let's hope so. It's great talking to you too. I enjoyed it.